Well, hey there, fellow Sojourners, and welcome back to another edition of Appropriating the Culture. On today's episode, we discuss whether it's naughty or nice to celebrate Christmas with Santa. I'm Pastor Shane, and I'll be Santa's little helper today as we appropriate some culture. So around this time of year, some Christians experience some consternation as it pertains to the jolly fat man in a red suit. Online, you may see comments like this one from Ian Crossland. Tell your kids that Santa is made up and has been used to divide the family unit. It gets kids to worship a fantasy man-hero and turns them away from appreciation of the parents. It also makes kids think their parents are liars when they find out. Don't let this communist agitprop seep into your family. There's no debate on this. Don't slander the name of Jesus Christ by lying to your kids on Christmas. Bonus points for bringing communism into it. And here's another hot take from Potluck Lauren. I realize this is an unpopular opinion, but my kids are not responsible for upholding the lie of Santa to your children. I do teach my kids not to be cruel, but you're the ones lying to your kids, not me. And I'm not teaching my kids to condone dishonesty. Boy. Don't throw a surprise party around Lauren or her kids. They'll ruin it. But one pastor completely agreed with Lauren, saying, quote, Santa Claus was a debate in my church in 2014. I confronted it by saying almost exactly what potluck Lauren said. Some got up and walked out. It became known as the Great Santa Claus Exodus of 2014. It was only four or five people, but they made a big town-wide deal out of it. I know that's a little tongue-in-cheek, the Great Santa Claus Exodus, but the fact that there's division in your church over Santa Claus is to your shame, not your credit. The use of Santa Claus in celebration is clearly a disputable matter. Christians in good standing can reasonably take different positions. And you know it's clearly a disputable matter because if it's a question of sin, then these families that continue to foster the notion of Santa Claus are engaging in unrepentant sin and should face church discipline. But that's not at all what you described. And when it comes to disputable matters, the Bible is clear. Romans, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. And it says further, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. We are explicitly told not to pass judgment on one another in regards to disputable matters. And you, as the pastor, who should be more mature and stronger in the faith, should be the most willing to pursue unity and peace in your congregation. Now, maybe I'm being too charitable. Perhaps Santa isn't disputable because, as his detractors say, it centers on a lie. You are lying to your children, and lying is sinful, and sin is not a disputable matter. John Piper, in fact, takes that position as he answers a question from a Santa mom this way. First, the primary crisis in her own mind seems to be whether you can preserve the myth and magic of Santa Claus without disobeying biblical commands like, do not lie to one another. I think the answer to that is really quite simple and straightforward. No, you can't. That is, you can't teach your children that Santa Claus is real if your intention is to teach them the truth. By real, I mean real the way children think of real, not the way sophisticated intellectuals would call a myth real, and not the way that imagination is real. I get that. It's just not the point. The point is, are we misleading the children in telling them this story as a simple statement of facts? 
Santa Claus lives at the North Pole. Santa Claus flies with reindeer. Santa Claus leaves gifts under the tree. Santa Claus is served by elves. To present this myth as fact is not truthful to our children. With respect to John Piper, I think that line of thinking is more childish than Santa Claus. First, let's address scripture. Lying is, of course, a sin. But we see in scripture and through our faculty of reason that it's not sin devoid of any and all context. And that should be obviously apparent because whether or not something is a lie is defined by the context, right? All lies are false statements, but not all false statements are lies. Lies hinge on motive. I could say something that is factually untrue, but if I didn't realize it was untrue, then it wouldn't be a lie. It would just be a mistake. Intention matters. Motive matters when it comes to lies. Or you could say something that is technically true, but entirely meant to deceive. Like when a teenager tells their parents, I was at my friend's house for five minutes before going to a party. The statement given might be technically true, but it's clearly a lie. So the point is, you can make false statements and not be lying, and you can make true statements and be lying. Which means, when it comes to the sin of lying, the motive matters, and the context is everything, which is precisely what we see in Scripture. For instance, the king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. That would be a lie, a liar and a prostitute. Scripture isn't going to look too kindly on old Rahab. Here's the author of Hebrews to lay into her lies. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Okay, that's a little more complimentary than I was going for. But still, that's commending her hospitality, not her lies. God would never condone lying under any circumstances. Well... I mean, there is this weird passage. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Now I realize these are descriptive texts, not prescriptive texts. And I further realize that God can use anything, including sin, for his ultimate and good purposes. So this is not definitive. But it still seems from a straightforward reading of the text that the Bible recognizes context and motive as essential elements to the sin of lying. The false statements of Ananias and Sapphira are not treated as the same as the false statements of Rahab. The false statements of Peter is not treated as the same as the false statements of Jonathan. It simply is not. And that makes sense because context and motive define the sin of lying. If I were hiding Jews and the Nazis asked me if I were hiding Jews, I would have no qualms whatsoever with being duplicitous. 
That may violate the letter of the law, but it certainly honors the spirit of the law. And we intuitively understand the difference there. Right? There's a difference between lying to cheat on your taxes and lying about hiding Jews. There's a difference between lying to get out of trouble and lying to throw a surprise party. There's a difference between finding something nice to say when asked what you really think and the unvarnished truth. And there's a difference between lying for the sake of self and lying for the sake of play, which I think John Piper was actually alluding to when he mentioned imagination. When I was playing tea with my daughter, she would give me a cup and I would sip it and I would say, mmm, delicious, that's good tea. But in fact, it was not delicious. In fact, it was not tea. In fact, it was nothing. Now, were my false statements a grave sin, a mortal sin, as the Catholics would say? Obviously not. We're not that dense. We all understand context and motive are the defining things about whether or not it constitutes the sin of lying. And Santa, just like the Tea Party, is play. We are playing with our children. That's what it is. So then the potential question might be, do both parties need to know its play in order for it to be permissible? I don't think so. And I see no logically compelling reason to think so. For one, the ignorance of the second party has no bearing on one's personal motive, which again is what defines the sin. And secondly, the perpetuation of Santa through the generations is proof of its playfulness. If you come to uncover the dastardly truth that your parents lied to you and betrayed you and the entire affair is traumatizing, then you probably wouldn't do that for your kids. People are not trying to harm their kids with Santa. That's ridiculous. The entire reason it's passed on is because the play of Santa was fun. Over time, the child realizes that he's being played with and it was fun play, and so they share that fun with their children. That's the only reason why it's passed on through the generations. And false statements in play, like the tea party, is not what the Bible is talking about when it condemns lying. But lying, apparently, isn't even the issue. Here's John Piper again. The first issue was, can the Santa Claus myth and magic be presented and preserved for our children without lying? That's not the issue. That's just not the real issue. And here's what he says is the main issue. The main issue is, why would a Christian who has found in Jesus Christ the greatest treasure in the world trade it for anything else? Why would they who see in the incarnation and life, death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus the most amazing story in the world tell another story? So the first statement is a textbook definition of a false dichotomy. I would certainly agree that if Christ is being supplanted by Santa in a Christian household, then there's a problem. But they're not mutually exclusive, and you don't need to trade away anything. That's a false dichotomy. And the second statement is just Looney Tunes. The fact that the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus is the most amazing story in the world doesn't mean Christians must therefore burn every book in their library that isn't the Bible. And John Piper doesn't believe that. In fact, he refutes himself at a different point in his response when he says, What about Narnia? I'm trying to get inside other people's heads when they listen to this and ask questions. How is this different, for example, from reading fiction to your children? Somebody might say, Well, it's not wrong to have fiction in your kids' lives, like the Chronicles of Narnia or Grimm's Fairy Tales. Those are presented not as real the way breakfast is real and backyards are real. They're made up, just like Jesus made up parables. 
The children should know that they're made-up stories. It's a good thing, I think, to tell children made-up stories. There's a reason why Jesus told parables. You have these kinds of things in the Bible. So, made-up stories are good. Made-up stories can edify us. They can teach us things. They can reveal truth to us. They can move us to empathy. They can point us to Christ. They're good and can produce good things, but only if you know they're fake. What? Let's think that through. Uh, let's imagine you've never heard of David Copperfield, but you're in the bookstore and David Copperfield has been placed in the nonfiction section. You take it and read it and you're like, wow, this is an incredible autobiography. And then someone tells you or you discover, well, there's some truth in it. It's somewhat an autobiography of Charles Dickens, but a lot of it is fiction. Does that revelation suddenly remove anything that you might have gleaned from the narrative? No. The work of fiction can edify us even if we're momentarily mistaken about its genre. And the same thing is true of the myth of Santa. And speaking of Narnia, I think that's kind of ironic to mention since Father Christmas literally shows up in the series with a bag of gifts. Don't think C.S. Lewis saw Santa in opposition to Christ. But Piper continues, For those who know that in this real historical event all the truth of myth and magic became reality, why would such a Christian ever dream of replacing or obscuring or supplementing this true story? Why would they replace it with such a non-gospel, pathetic myth like Santa Claus, whose message is, you better be good and you better not cry? I just can't imagine it. I regard the effort of Christian parents to lay the Santa Claus story over the Jesus story as a failure to be thrilled with the greatest story in the world and a failure of imagination for how to speak about the real story and show the real story in a way that helps children share our amazement. That's a parlor trick that can be done with absolutely anything. Why celebrate Valentine's Day when we behold the greatest act of sacrificial love ever known to man? Why would we substitute agape love for the superficiality of Eros? Why celebrate the 4th of July when we have true liberty from sin and death in Christ? Why align ourselves with the non-gospel pathetic nation of America when we are citizens of an everlasting kingdom that even the gates of Hades won't prevail against? That's a parlor trick. And it can be done with anything, because anything and everything is lesser than Christ. But that's an empty, puffed-up self-righteousness. Now, perhaps you would say, but Santa is different because it's co-opting the celebration of the Incarnation. Okay, so you would be fine with Santa if it were a purely secular holiday. See, that becomes weird, because if it's about the particular season, we have to recognize that although Christmas is a Christian observance and tradition, we are under no biblical mandate to celebrate the Incarnation. Most likely, Jesus wasn't born in December, and Christians have disagreed about whether to celebrate Christmas at all. The Puritans, for instance, were very much against celebrating Christmas precisely because it was unbiblical. Is it unholy, unrighteous, or sinful for people to not celebrate Christmas? That seems dubious. But if it's not unrighteous to not celebrate Christmas, then we're left with a very strange predicament where it's perfectly fine and perfectly righteous to not celebrate Christmas at all, to disregard it completely, but it's not okay and not righteous to co-opt it. You're going to have to show your work on that one. Thankfully, John Piper will tell us the righteous way of celebrating Christmas. 
If you need help, my wife wrote a book called Treasuring God in Our Traditions that describes some of the things we did over the years for our little kids when we didn't have Santa Claus, didn't have stockings, and didn't have a tree. You are probably saying, how can you not have a tree? Well, there are alternative, exciting things to do. Bottom line, truth is stranger than fiction. Stranger, more amazing, more thrilling, more durable, more heart-transforming, more Christ-honoring, more soul-satisfying. Your children have Christ-shaped empty spaces in their hearts. They don't know this. You must show them. But it can't be done with Santa Claus, only Christ. Sounds delightful. Let's check in on John Piper's son, Abraham Piper, for more on his childhood. I have never in my life been angry at God. And I was raised evangelical. We believed in a personal God, a God you could have emotions about, a God you were supposed to have emotions about, but only good ones. I more or less followed through on this. I do not recall a moment of anger at the Lord. I used to think this was a sign of my deep and what I thought would be abiding faith. But now I take my lack of anger at the fundamentalist Christian God as a sign of having no faith in that God at all. Interesting how opposites can have the exact same effect. Or maybe they're not opposites. Maybe my lack of anger, even back in the childhood, was a sign of the future freedom I'd find. There were other signs. I also didn't pray. I did one time ask God to raise a lady from the dead when I was six. That didn't work. And I remember laying in my bed, feeling like I was communing with the Lord for like five minutes one time. But the only reason I remember that is because it's the only time it happened. I just didn't pray. I perform prayed, which is an important part of being in the community. Everybody does it, even the true believers. You know, bow your head, say amen at the right time. There's nothing wrong with this. You need your group to know you're in. Now, I'm not saying I was never a Christian, though there are some people who would argue that. I'm saying that while for some people a mustard seed size of faith is enough to keep them faithful, the reverse can also be true. There I was, a faithful little fundamentalist, unaware that I had a mustard seed size lack of faith, which could blossom over time into full-on faithlessness. Does mustard blossom? Don't know. Anyway, thanks for watching. Come along if you feel like it. Now, I bring up Abraham Piper not to dunk on John. That's tragic, and it can happen to anyone. We, we do our best to raise our kids, but ultimately, they are their own people, and they will stand before God on their own. But I bring it up to demonstrate you can do all of these things. Follow Piper's lead and do the list of godly ways of celebrating Christmas, and you can still wind up an apostate, because this is nothing. It doesn't produce righteousness. It's like what Paul is railing against in Colossians when he says, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, whether self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. No trees, no stockings, no Santa. That might have an appearance of wisdom, but it does absolutely nothing. And the truth is, Santa can be a hindrance in your walk, but he can also be a help. He can give children a foothold to understanding the incommunicable attributes of God. But also, Santa can obscure Christ, or he can illuminate. I think one of the more edifying things about the myth is that it affords us a means of lavishing loved ones with gifts and taking no credit. But ultimately, this is completely a disputable matter. Don't celebrate Christmas at all. Fine. Celebrate, but without Santa. Fine. Celebrate and with Santa. Also fine. The Bible does not mandate that we celebrate the Incarnation, and the use or non-use of Santa is not inherently sinful. But we are explicitly told in Scripture to stop judging one another in regard to disputable matters. And that's what we ought to do. All right. 
That'll do for today. If you like what we're doing here, like, subscribe, share, review, leave a comment, especially if you disagree. Buy my book, Six Rounds for the Witching Hour on Amazon. Join my author's Facebook page, and I'll see you next time for more Appropriate in the Culture.